And today we have a special treat. We get to see Christ's first publicly beheld miracle in the book of John. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Let's read God's holy inspired word together. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take some to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you reveal things to us through your word. And Lord, thank you that every part of your word is valuable for teaching and instruction. Lord, thank you that your miracles, in a sense, function for us to reveal who you are and what it looks like to serve you and what kind of king and kingdom it is that you bring. God, I pray that you would, as we sang a few minutes ago, illumine our minds, open our hearts. May we see you. We want to see you. We need to see you, Jesus Christ. I ask that you would empower me with your Holy Spirit as I speak, Lord, and and empower each and every person here to hear by your Holy Spirit's enabling. Open up our hearts, our minds, our ears. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember the anticipation kind of leading up to my own wedding. I remember the joy, the eagerness, the the excitement, the the nervousness, the longing to be with my bride. I barely remember the actual ceremony itself. It was it was somewhat of a blur, but I remember the, the dancing and the celebration afterwards, and it was a, a wonderful time of great joy with friends and family afterwards. And we didn't have much money back then, but we paid for a wedding on our own, and it was still a time of great joy. You don't require a lot of money these days, really, to, to have a wonderful, joy-filled celebration. It wasn't quite the same back in the day that we're reading about, but but we had a wonderful wedding. I remember as a child, I, I always loved going to weddings. I loved attending weddings with my family and, and getting to celebrate and eat all kinds of food that I never got to eat before and have those little goldfish crackers from Pepperidge Farm that I didn't have in the 80s widely and, I, and those little mints that are like chalk. I don't know why they were so wonderful, but I loved going to weddings and celebrating. 
And I count it a privilege today. You know, I, I don't think I understood then what it really meant for a man and a woman for this mysterious union that was transpiring. But, but today, I, I, I love, still love going to weddings and, and celebrating and count it a privilege to observe that, that mysterious yet common joining of a man and, you, and a woman together as one. That's, it's something unexpressible, but yet it's joyful. But not all weddings, not all marriages turn out happily, do they? There are bumps, there's turns that make things difficult. Maybe you're here today and you've experienced some bumps and turns that made things difficult and maybe you have had the dissolution of a marriage. Not all marriages turn out happily ever after. Without Christ at the center, marriage collapses. Without Christ, the joy runs out. In our scripture text, what we have before us really is is a joyous occasion that really could have turned out very badly. A joyous occasion that could have turned out very badly, especially in that culture of high expectations and high demands on the groom and the groom's family and this high culture of shame. It would have real consequences. Running out of wine doesn't seem like a big deal back to us, but back then it was. But what we also have here is a picture of something greater. This is not just Jesus providing some wine. Oh, isn't that nice? We have a sign here, what John calls a sign, that points to a greater reality. A greater reality. There's something bigger happening here. What we see is we see this unique ability of Jesus to transform and to give joy. That's what we see in this passage. We, we see the abundant generosity of Jesus. We, we see that he gives the best to the undeserving. We see that he provides joy at the wedding. But the first thing that we're going to see here is that without Jesus, the wine runs out. Without Jesus, the wine runs out. They had run out of wine at this wedding. Unless Jesus was intervening, unless he did intervene, that they would have had no wine and... It was a big deal to them. I, I, you know, I love, I guess as an aside, I love, I love this story for multiple reasons. I love that it shows Jesus and his humanity and his, his very real humanness. He's going to a wedding. He was invited there. Um, he's going as a family friend probably, having a good time, just like anybody else might do. He's not performed any miracles publicly quite yet. But he's obviously well thought of enough by the host that he was invited along with all of his newly called disciples. And so they're all there just enjoying the wedding, enjoying the joys that God provides from normal life and celebrations. And, but weddings in that culture, they were a big deal. They were, they were much bigger, really, than even weddings today. Even if you grew up up north, where the culture is to provide these massive weddings, and there's an expectation you have sit-down meals. Of every area of the country have different cultures when it comes to wedding. Well, back in that day and in that culture, weddings were an even bigger deal. There were these occasions of great joy and festivities and feasting and dancing. But there were socially significant occasions as well. They were times of celebration for the community. They had many symbolic elements that went along with them. And in wine was one of those symbolic elements. Wedding would typically begin in the evening. It would go on through the night. And Jewish weddings in that day, they could last for up to seven days of feasting. And the, the bride and the groom, they'd be treated like kings and queens and... The wedding would actually start with wine and it would kind of conclude with wine. It, 
It began, the Jewish celebration of a wedding, began with saying a blessing over a cup of wine and sharing the covenant vows over a glass of wine. And then in the feasting, it would be seen as this maximum time of celebration with music and dancing and food and wine. But in this case, there's a problem. The wine ran out. And, you know, maybe you didn't have wine at your wedding. We didn't have wine at ours. It wasn't a big deal. I didn't think twice about it. But in that day, in that culture, this was a major blow. It's hard to imagine a parallel today. Maybe if you combined, I don't know, the, wine, the, 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 the bride's dress getting completely ruined and the caterer not showing up and no meals there and the cake getting ruined and the minister giving the wrong vows. If you combined all those things, maybe that would be a really bad wedding and, and that's just kind of scratching the surface of the cultural or social effect that they would have experienced in this wedding, you see, because in that culture, wine, it symbolized life. It symbolized merriment. It symbolized joy. It, it made the heart glad, is what Scripture says. In fact, if the wine ran out before the feast was over, the father of the bride could actually sue the groom for failing to provide a sufficient celebration. And that was actually done in that day. So they could have financial hardships if they didn't have wine at a wedding. It seems kind of silly, doesn't it? But wasn't silly to them. So they, they, running out of wine in that day, was, it was like running out of joy. If, if wine was seen as the joy of life, you run out of wine, you run out of joy of wedding. It was, a, it was a bad sign for the wedding. And it was a sign that the groom wasn't able to provide sufficiently. He wasn't able to provide joy for the marriage. And so when Jesus' mother comes up, that's all the freight that's kind of loaded. You have to understand that getting back into the first century understanding when they're hearing this and seeing this. So when Jesus' mother comes to him and says, there's, there's no wine, the, the wine has run out. It was a big deal. And there's no total wine, you know, down on Woodruff Road in Cana. They didn't have any total wine store. or couldn't buy just a low, big quantity of wine in this little obscure fishing village. They'd probably bought out all the stores already of wine. And so there's no reasonable way to supply the new wine. And so this was a serious problem. And the rabbis actually used to have a saying, and they said, where there's no wine, there's no joy. Kind of like the rabbis, but um, it would have been a major disappointment. Would have prematurely ended the celebration. Would have caused grief in the family relationships. That's the setting. And, and I think it's interesting for us, when John calls this miracle a sign, in fact, Jesus' miracles all speak of something. They speak of what he does, what his character is, how he intervenes into humanity, what he provides. So it's a very real miracle that's performed, but it's also symbolic as well. And I think there are times in our life when the wine runs out, figuratively, if you will. There's times in our life when, when, when the joy runs out, when we're celebrations are become cold and... When our supply of joy, our wine, runs out. For everybody, there's a time in life when the joy naturally runs out, isn't there? You ever had those times? Maybe you're young and you've not experienced it yet. Or maybe you're young and you have, have prematurely experienced hardships. And, and the wine of life has run out for you. The joy of life has run out. But no matter what age you are, no matter what season of life you're in, no matter what your background is, no matter how wealthy or poor you are, no matter where you come from, what you look like, there's a time in life, in, in this natural celebrations of life, where the wine in life runs out, where the joy in life runs out. You know, the very good, natural, 
exhilaration, enjoyment that God provides in life, whether physical, material, sensual, mental, it will run out at some point in life. Even Disneyland or Disney World grows old. And especially if you have four kids and you take them to Disney more than once, it gets old really quick. Our wedding to this world will run out of wine eventually. The writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, he had it all, right? He was the richest, wisest man in the world. He had everything he could ever want. He tried everything. He was skilled in many areas. He knew, though, apart from God, the joy runs out. Most of the first part of the book of Ecclesiastes is all about that, of him discovering that truth. And look in Ecclesiastes 1.14. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, it's all vanity and striving after the wind. It's, it's, it's empty. That doesn't mean that things aren't good because later on he talks about the, this is good enjoyment and toil and labor and seeing the fruit of our hands. But then he says in, in 1.16, he says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I apply my heart to know wisdom and no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's a real happy moment, isn't it? A few verses later in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, he says, I also gather for myself silver. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that he's, he's seen everything done. He's understood everything. He's had a chance to do everything. And he says, I gather for myself silver and gold. So he's, he's rich in the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers to entertain both men and women. And, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Something that normally leaves. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Think about that. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, everything we just talked about, everything he just said. He says, behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained ever under the sun. For everyone, there is a time in life when the wine runs out, when, when joy in this world and the pleasures of this world runs out. Without Christ, unless Christ supplies the wine of life, our joy will run out. Well, the lack of wine at this wedding, it wasn't a minor inconvenience. It mattered a lot in that time and place. And as we said earlier, it could, provide, it could, could mean financial hardships for them. What a reason Jesus' mother comes to him. Maybe she knew what he was capable of, even though he hadn't done anything. After all, the mother of Jesus, she had gotten the prophecy from the angel Gabriel. She had conceived of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit while she was still a virgin. She had seen him live a perfect life. Can you imagine that, parents? A son that always honored, always respected, always obeyed, always served when needed, always helped without being asked, always loved you and always loved their siblings perfectly. She likely knew who he was. That's, that's more than a bit unusual. I can't imagine a son with an intellect and a mind uncorrupted by sin in any way. A brilliant thinker and yet always humble about it. And so we can presume that Mary believed he was the Messiah and so she comes to him. 
And she says, they have no wine. In effect, she was saying, their celebration's over. This is a, a drastic situation. They're about to be embarrassed. I want you to do something about this. It wasn't just informing Jesus. She was expecting him to do something. She knew he could and was expecting that he would. She was like, she was saying, I know you care. I know you can do something. So I want to let you know the wine's run out. But then he says something strange to her, at least in our ears. He says, he says woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, today we hear the word woman. If I, if I, when my mom was still alive, and I said woman to my mother, I, I don't think she'd respond so well. I, I think she would take offense to that. I jokingly did that when I was a kid, and it didn't go over so great. But contrary to, to others, I don't think Jesus was being hard on his mother. He wasn't being rude. That would have been unloving and sinful, but because we know that the same term, it really means dear woman. And, and he used the same term when he spoke to his mother when he was on the cross. And he said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He wasn't being unkind, but he was saying something that was strange even in that day. It would have been odd for a son to call the mother woman instead of mother or the colloquial terms for mother in that day. And so when he calls her woman, he's doing something. He's saying that, you know, now... He's probably in his 30s now. He, he is, he's just about to enter into public ministry. He has been commissioned by God to public ministry. And so what he's saying is, our relationship has changed. Woman, I, I no longer treat you as my mother. You don't have that authority. You don't have the right to demand of me. Tell me what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm more than your son. I'm the Messiah. You have no special access to me. Now, my disciples, all those who follow me are those who have access to me, who have a right to ask things of me. He kind of said the same thing in Matthew, I think it was Matthew 12, verse 50, later on, when he says, whoever does the will of my father, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And so here he's calling his mother to soft correction, and he says, what does this have to do with me? Then he says, my hour has not yet come. You see, Jesus, at the very outset of his ministry, he was looking forward to the completion of his ministry when he would consummate his, his salvation in the cross. And so where his glory would be on full display, his hour of his full revealing of who he was had not yet come. And so he's asking, what, do you, what would you have me do? My hour of full display has not yet come. But then in a small manner, he displays his glory here, as John tells us. His mother clearly didn't take his words as offense and she responds to him and we can see that her response is submissive and she, she in a sense, relents in a very Jewish way and she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so what she's saying is, I, I, I trust you. I'm, I'm relying on you to do what you know is best. I, I'm submitting to you. Servants, do whatever he tells you. But there was still an expectation in that, still a desire in that, that he would do, that he would provide so he doesn't respond then out of obligation, but he had his own choice, and he shows kindness to this newlywed couple. And so John gives us some details in this account. He clearly intends that we not just take this as a figurative account or a mythological story, but John shows us something here in the details. He shows us that Jesus provides something better. Or you could take out the word something there and just say Jesus provides better. That's what we see in this miracle is we see a parabolic understanding of this miracle and that Jesus provides better. He provides better. 
You know, with a lack of the other details. It's interesting. John tells a very abbreviated story. He doesn't give very many details. But to see the details that he does give, he, he gives a detail that, that might seem odd. At least it seems odd the first time because he doesn't give any other details like whose wedding is Jesus at? Why is his mom asking his questions? Um, all, all the other details you might look for, might expect, are not there. But he tells us something. He says there were six stone water jars. And then he doesn't just stop there. He gives another detail. He could have said there were six stone water jars. Jesus used them and he made wine. Done, right? But he explains there were six stone water jars and, and they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Jesus specifically selects these jars. I, I love a comment by a, a theologian named Claire, Craig Blomberg in an article entitled The Miracles as Parables. He wrote, the alternative of talking about the interpretations of this is to interpret The miracle is a vivid illustration of the transformation of the old water of Mosaic religion into the new wine of the kingdom. The otherwise unnecessary reference to the water jars as for the Jewish rites of purification, it reinforces this interpretation. The otherwise remarkable sparsity of detail and error makes an end aside like this all the more striking is suggests that that more's involved than mere justification of the presence of water jars for a Hellenistic audience unfamiliar with Jewish customs. So what is Jesus doing here? He, he could have used the, the new, newly empty wine jars. They probably had a lot of jars. They kept the wine in for the wedding. So he would have just said, hey, bring me all the empty bottles, empty wine jars, empty wineskins, whatever you have, bring those to me. I'll fill those up. Why didn't he do that? Well, he was making a point here. You know, whenever Jesus did a miracle, he was always making a point. He was making a theological statement. And so, he deliberately chooses something different. He he chose to use what was previously seen to make a person clean ceremonially, the, the Jewish rite of purification, and he repurposes it entirely. Leslie Newbegin says, he says, the water is for the rites of purification required by the law, Part of the whole ritual apparatus which is provided to keep Israel as a nation consecrated for the Lord in the midst of the world which is defiled by sin. Purification is a negative action. The water removes uncleanness but does not give the fullness of joy. What the law cannot supply, Jesus will give in super abundance. The action of Jesus here is free, sovereign, surpassing any mere rectification of defect. It is the coming into experience of that which is really new, the new wine you get that? The new wine of the kingdom of God. It's an act of overflowing majesty of the creator. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, now that I'm here, these jars are no longer needed for purification, so bring them to me. I'm going to fill them with the good stuff, with something new and something better. Since, Since Jesus is saying that in me, all the Jewish laws and customs are no longer needed, he came to replace the waters used for religion with his own good wine. And the wine here is literal wine, but it believes it represents the new wine of Christ's covenant with his people. And it's interesting that he began his public ministry in a wedding, and we'll see at the end, he ends, or will end, his ministry with us in, in a wedding as well. The wine's literal, but represents the new wine of his covenant with his people. And he replaces this Jewish system of of making yourself clean. And he says, those jars aren't needed for that. I'm going to give something better. And he, he, he gives his wine of the covenant that makes 
one clean as you drink deeply and enjoy it to the fullest. I, renowned New Testament scholar Leon Morris, he says, John surely means us to see the water of Jewish ceremonial observance. Water used in accordance with Jewish concentration on the law as a way of salvation is changed by Christ into the wine of the gospel. Jesus had not come to tidy up an old system. He, changed to, he came to change people, to change them radically, to put a new power in them. The law didn't give permanent relief, but, but Jesus, through his one sacrifice on the cross, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. It tells us in Hebrews. He truly purifies is what we see. The, the law didn't really truly purify, but Jesus, he truly purifies of our sins. He also removes condemnation from us for those who are in Christ Jesus. He replaces the old waters of Jewish ritual purification with his covenant wine that he alone gives. Now look down at verse seven. We see that this miracle is also a sign that Jesus gives abundantly. Jesus doesn't just give wine and he gives something better. He gives abundantly. Jesus said to the servants, he said, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Isn't that a great picture? They fill these purification jars up to the very brim, up to the very top. And, and it tells us the detail. It says that each of these water jars held between 20 and 30 gallons. These were not small jars. I've got a, a bucket in my garage that holds about 10 gallons, about this high, it's about that big around. So 20 to 30 gallons would have been as tall as me, about that big around. These were massive jars. You know, if I ever showed up at a wedding and they had six master jars this high, full of wine, I think they're probably well equipped. Um, they probably bought a little too much. Somebody wasted a lot of money there. Jesus miraculously somehow transforms this water into wine right in front of the servants. And I want you to think about how much wine that really is, just for a second, because I think we're meant to see that, that Jesus provides abundantly. If you took today's average wine bottle, it's like 750 milliliters, and that's about four glasses, if you drink conservatively or normally. And um, if, you, if you multiply that out, there would be somewhere between 750 to 900 bottles of wine. It says between 20 and 30 gallons. So if you served... All those bottles, it'd be somewhere between 3,000 and 3,600 servings of wine. It was more than enough to satisfy. I think we're meant to see that. We're meant to be astounded. He did what? He, he, he made how much wine? He filled them up to the brim? That wasn't really necessary, was it, Jesus? Did you have to make six? Six big jars full of wine. He could have made two. It would have been plenty for the wedding, right? I think we're meant to see that at the very outset of his ministry that he provides, he gives abundantly to supply what is needed to overflowing because that's the kind of Messiah. That's the kind of Savior he is. He gives more than enough when a small amount would have been a large demonstration of his grace. He didn't have to give anything. He could have made a couple jars he could have just made 50 or 60 gallons of wine. But isn't it like Jesus to supply what is needed to overflowing? Jesus gives an overabundance of wine. I was reading um, daily commentary from a guy named Richard Burge, and he shares a perspective here of 
what the Messiah would be like. And he says, the prophet Amos uses the images of the mountains dripping with sweet wine and the hills flowing with it for the great day of the Lord to come. And similar examples of wine as a sign of so-called messianic abundance are found in other Hebrew prophets. And he goes on from there. Isaiah looks forward to giving a huge party, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, and likens God rejoicing over his people to a wedding. Jesus himself uses this image of a wedding banquet for the kingdom of heaven in his parable of a marriage feast and those who refuse the invitation. He likens himself to the bridegroom in Mark 2.19. All of this, says the fourth evangelist, is being inaugurated in the here and now as Jesus begins his ministry at this wedding feast in Cana. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the Messiah who provides abundantly? Not only did Jesus rescue this newlywed couple from embarrassment or shame or lawsuits or financial difficulties, he provides for them the best to the fullest. It's just like Christ, as the Apostle Paul says to us in Philippians, he says, in my God, this abundant God, this abundant Messiah, this abundant Savior, he says, he will supply every need of yours according to the riches his riches in glory in Christ Jesus at the end of this parable we see that it says that they saw the glory of Jesus what were they seeing they weren't just seeing him making a wine they were seeing his glorious abundant provision his heart to provide abundantly now it's not a, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have health and wealth and everything's going to go well with you that's that's not what scripture tells us that's, but it's saying he will supply everything you need He's able to give us everything that's needed. He loves us. He doesn't desire to withhold from us what's needed. So in the midst of sorrow and lack, he knows what we really need and he'll supply it as well. But we have to remember, it's not ours to dictate the terms, try to control, manipulate Christ, suppose we know what is needed, but we can trust him. We can can cry out to him and say, God, here's what we think we need and we can trust you to say, God, do whatever you will. Knowing his character is to supply abundantly. Do you know that? Do you see his character? Or are you tempted to question his character because of what you're not getting? I'm tempted that way. But we can trust him. We can see his character. We can see his goodness, even if we don't get what we think we need. There's no trick happening here. Jesus did something that no one else could do and he tells them to draw the water out and it, it's this newly made wine and they take it to the, the master of the ceremonies and just as he told them, what they all discovered and what the disciples saw was that this water that was filled up to the brim, it was transformed completely because Jesus transforms completely. That's, that's what we see in Jesus' character here. We see the character of Jesus' ability to transform completely in this miracle. He has power over the very atoms that he has made. The atomic structure of water becomes wine. The master of the feast, he tastes the water now to become wine. He's impressed and bewildered. The servants know, they're probably smirking. They're like, we know what happened, but they didn't tell him for some reason. So he goes to the bridegroom and um, look, look down in your Bible. It says, everyone serves the good wine first. I imagine he's kind of saying this incredulously. Everybody serves the good wine first when, when people have drunk freely. Then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Now, that that phrase, when, when people have drunk freely, that's, that's the ESV putting it nicely. It's actually the, the word directly translated everywhere else in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's mentioned is when the people were drunk. 
That's what this guy's saying, you know, hey, if, when people get drunk is when you bring out the, the bad stuff. Or when people have had too much to drink is when you bring the bad stuff. He's not endorsing drunkenness, which is why the ESV translate that way, because that's not the point. But he's saying after a few glasses, it's harder to tell what's good wine, what's watered down. And, but, you know, you could have done the bare minimum, but Jesus didn't just do the bare minimum. He didn't just provide, you know, two buck chuck for those of you who drink bad wine from total, I mean, from where is that at? Uh, Trader Joe's. There we go. <laughs> Don't be offended. It's okay. The kids are offended by that. Um, the wine he made on the spot was already fully fermented and aged to perfection. It was with all the subtlety and complexity of a fine wine. You don't just make that overnight. You don't just immediately produce that. It takes years to produce a wine of good vintage. And yet Jesus' wine was superior. See, everybody brings out the, the good stuff and provides the best of the end, but you've, you've waited until it bring out the best. Jesus His wine is superior, just as everything about the new covenant that Jesus brought is superior in every way to the old. Everything that Jesus does is superior. His wine is superior. His joy that he gives is superior. The problem is, often we look to inferior sources for joy. Well, Jesus didn't get rid of the water jars either. Notice that. He, he could have used something else. He, he, he intentionally repurposes them, and he made something better than water, and, and he, he transformed the use of those jars from religious rites of purification to a celebration. Because Jesus, he transforms completely. You know, the idea of, of, of purification, this was doing away with something bad, but he actually says, I'm going to transform that whole thing completely, and I'm going to give you something that's used to celebrate. He transforms completely. It was a foreshadowing of the fact that, that the water of purification is not needed any longer, and, and it's insufficient to supply what's needed, but he gives something better. He gives something transformative. His covenant, his wine gives true joy. And we still need purification. And if you were here this morning, that seemed to be the theme that God had for us was that he is the one who makes us clean. But we don't need the purification of a legalistic system of externalities. We don't need to be made pure just on the outside, on the surface. We don't need to dress ourselves up to look good. We need to be made clean on the inside. We need something, someone that will transform us and make us clean. We need a new kind of cleansing that we don't have to do over and over again as a countless, countless times as a ritual. We need a cleansing that makes us pure forever. And that's what Jesus' new covenant wine gives us. He says, I'm, I'm in, in, the, in the act of communion, it's a beautiful picture. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. See, Jesus was using wine symbolically as well, so it's not a stretch to see him doing it here. This cup's a new covenant in in my blood. What does that mean? It means that his blood was shed to do away with the sacrificial system of old. It was, it was shed to give us freedom and make us completely pure once and for all, never to be impure. Even though we continue to sin, his blood has covered a multitude of sins. He forgives us and, and removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He shows us his love. He gives us his new covenant in his blood. 
He gives us freedom in God. He gives us life and life abundantly. He gives us love and his peace and his joy and contentment in himself despite any circumstance, knowing that he's Lord of all. And the question for us really is not what does he give, but have we received it? What are we drinking of? What are we receiving? What are we focusing on? What Are we still trying to purify ourselves? Are we still trying to make ourselves right with God on our own? Or do we say, Jesus, you transform completely. You give abundantly. And you give something better. I want that. Something else we see here, too, in this parable is that the wine that Jesus has made for us, it it gives true and lasting joy. But with Jesus, the wine, it doesn't run out. At this wedding feast, their wine did not run out. You can be sure in Cana of Galilee, this very small village, probably only had a few hundred maybe inhabitants at that time maximum, that would have been more than enough provide for the entire village. And it's doubtful the whole village was there. But even if they were, the wine did not run out at that feast. They had more than enough. I think what we're meant to see is that with Jesus, the, the wine won't end. John says something at the end. He says he calls this miracle the first of his signs. John is unique in that. All the other apostles, um, the writers of Scripture, they, they tend to call it miracles or manifestations or works. John says signs because John sees that every miracle God performs is a, a sign of something bigger. When I, when I see a sign, a billboard on the road that tells me Cracker Barrel is five miles, it's a sign of a place where I can get food. It's a sign of something bigger than the sign or better than just the sign. Or When you see a sign, it's meant to point to something. It signifies something. So John, he saw beyond the miracles to what they signified And it's significant, think about this, Jesus didn't do anything accidentally. It's significant that King Jesus chose to begin his ministry and manifest his glory, as John says, at a wedding feast. It's a meaningful miracle that points us to something more significant about Jesus. It's a a sign of the authority of King Jesus and his kingdom. It's a sign of his power, his ability to transform the fundamental elements of life. That's what it's a sign of. Who is this Jesus? He's the Jesus who gives something better. He's the Jesus who provides abundantly. He's the Jesus who transforms the fundamental essence of life. It's a sign of what kind of king he is and what he brings. You see, King Jesus, he gloriously brings life and joy when life and joy have run out. What was the effect at that wedding when he made all that wine? They celebrated. They reveled in, in, a, in a good way. It doesn't say they got drunk, but they celebrated. They enjoyed the wine of life, the joy that he brought. Jewish marriage in that day, you have to understand some things about why he chose to begin his ministry at a wedding feast. I think it was for a reason. You see, a Jewish marriage in that day would be arranged long and advanced by the fathers. The father would approach the other family, and would make an agreement and make a covenant with that family. A purchase price would be agreed on and a price would be paid for the bride. And the marriage covenant would be established and then this period of betrothal would begin and where the groom would return home to prepare a place for the bride to live. And this was, wasn't shorter than a year, but it could be longer And during this time, though, they were legally married and and to separate would have required a writ of divorce and the same requirements that divorce would have required. And so this was was just a marriage, but it was a marriage that had not yet been fully consummated. And 
But then after that time of betrothal, the groom would come and fetch his bride. And it's a neat thing. The groom would come, and the bride didn't know when the groom was coming. And it would be at the time that the father decided. And the father would say, come. And then, so he would herald, and he would blow a trumpet and come down the streets and, and herald, the bride is coming, the bride is coming. And the bride would come back, and it was a surprise. And so she had to be ready and eagerly waiting for his coming. And then the groom would come, sounding this trumpet And he would take the bride back with him to his home or to their family home, the home of his father most likely, to the place where he prepared. And they would share their vows to begin with over a glass of wine, then commence their marriage and celebrate with his great joyous wedding feast. That's the context. I think it's important to understand that. It's important to understand what John meant when he said it's a sign. Why did Jesus do this at a wedding? I think there's some things to see. See, for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and if you're trusting in him for your life, you can rejoice. The Father has arranged your marriage to Christ. He began his his ministry for a reason at a wedding. You see, it tells us that long ago, before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father planned to send his son to do what? To go and get a bride. And he agreed to a purchase price. And when the Son of God, the Father, Jesus Christ, when he, when he died on the cross, it was the final payment of dowry. It was the purchase price for you as Christ's bride, paid in full. The Apostle Matthew, he wrote of Jesus' last supper. And he said, after he took the cup, when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, He offers the wine today. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. Don't forget the with you in that verse. When I drink it new with you. Where? In my Father's kingdom. You see, right now we're in that, that period really of betrothal, if you will. The, the price has been paid already. The father has already made arrangements. The price has been paid. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And he's gonna come again to take his church, his bride home to the ultimate wedding feast. And, and we can be sure that he will provide all the wine that's needed. The question is, have you, have you tasted this wine? Have you drank from the wine of his new covenant. Do you see that Jesus provides something better? Do you see the Jesus who provides abundantly? Do you know the Jesus who transforms completely? Have you drank the wine of the new covenant? Have you been transformed by his grace through trusting in him? He provides a better wine in life. You know, they say that that nothing can survive without water. It's interesting that Jesus turns that fundamental element to his wine. He says, this is, this, this is something better here. He transforms completely. He gives joy abundantly in life that doesn't run out. Maybe you don't feel that way, though. Maybe this morning is not your experience. You're not feeling that way. Maybe you're hung up on your difficulties, your lack, or you just want out of things. Maybe you... Maybe you're like, God, I don't want that. I just want enough, and I can't get it. 
Maybe you, maybe you're physically having issues. Maybe you're lacking sleep. Maybe you have a, you know, lack physical ability or mental acumen. Maybe you, are, you want your suffering or your pain to end. Those are very real things in life. And they're understandable. Maybe you see your need, your want. Maybe you can't see happiness without getting, though, what you need or want. All those things are very normal human experiences, and we're called to, to bring God before him our needs, but then we're called to trust him, knowing that he knows what we need before we even ask him. And then he, he's able to supply our needs, and then we have to do kind of what Mary says, do, do whatever he tells you. We have to trust him to do whatever's best. You know, subtly we can make idols out of our needs and wants to the place where we lack joy in life because we're more aware of what we don't have than we are aware of the new wine that he gives, the joy in life that he gives. And we can look for satisfaction in all these other lesser things that were never meant to satisfy us. Only the wine of his new covenant was meant to satisfy us, to give us joy that doesn't run out. So where are you looking think we're called to take up our glass of his exceedingly good wine today if I had thought about it I had, it would have been great to finish with communion I didn't think about it in advance but you can imagine in your head taking up the gl- a glass of exceedingly good wine no matter what the circumstances you're in and drinking deeply of his goodness and his love and his peace and his rest and his comfort and his hope and his contentment and his joy that he gives despite what you've experienced and what you're experiencing. You see, we're betrothed to Jesus and he's gone to prepare a place for us in his father's house where he says there are many mansions. And meanwhile, he's, he's offered to us his glass and says, this is the wine of the new covenant. Take it, drink of it, enjoy it, celebrate it. And here's the thing, he's not poor. He's not gonna run out. He's able to provide all that his bride needs. Is Jesus at the center of your celebration, your feast, your life? If so, we can be sure his wine, his joy will never run out, amen? Let's pray, and as I pray, I'll have the band go ahead and come up and we'll play something, Matt.